Welcome to Love at First Science with me, your host and fellow inquisitive inquirer, lover of all things nerdy, Celeste. As a physiotherapist and neuroscience student, I love science, but I'm also interested in the world of business, creativity, psychology. So this podcast is going to interview all sorts of different people from many different backgrounds to gain an understanding of the science behind their passion. Here on Love at First Science, we're about to embark on Series 4, which is all about neuroscience. The panel is quite diverse. We're going to be looking at the female brain, hypermobility, herniated discs, and one of my all-time favorite topics, pain. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Sapistine. So I came across his content on Instagram, and guys, I was really impressed by the level of detail that he shares to help support the hypermobile community. He's cared for over 2,000 patients with EDS, POTS, and related conditions, and this has allowed him and his team to gain key knowledge and skills necessary to diagnose and manage these patients and all of the accompanying disorders that they have to live with. Now, in addition to his experience with EDS patients, Dr. Sapacine has over 20 years experience as a neurologist. So I had to get him on the podcast for this series all about neuroscience. And I'm so grateful because he really opened my eyes to just how many other complexities there are within the hypermobile category. And it's things that I didn't even consider. And I've even written a book about hypermobility. So guys, enjoy this chat with the wonderful Dr. Sapistine. So I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Sapistine, who is an incredible doctor that is helping so many people that are struggling with hypermobility, EDS, and I am someone who's actually written a book about hypermobility. And when actually when I started um, engaging with your content, doctor, on um, Instagram, I started realizing actually there's still so much to learn. And so I'm very grateful to you that you are able to give up your time to talk to us and share your wealth of wisdom with us. My pleasure. Doctor, before we um, jump into all the questions I have prepared, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got to working in this field? Sure. Um, yeah, I think for a lot of us getting into this field, we just sort of stumbled upon it or, or fell into it. So um, I'm a neurologist and um, for over 20 years, um, my practice had been seeing people with uh, nerve and muscle conditions. So I was rather specialized in a, in a subspecialty of neurology. So I had uh, been used to seeing complicated patients or patients with conditions that, um, you know, the general field of physicians and neurologists, you know, necessarily weren't uh, as comfortable with. Um, and then over the course of the last several years, uh, became more interested um, in autonomic disorders. So uh, the part of the nervous system that does things that we don't have to think about automatically. So regulating blood pressure, heart rate, body temperature, sweating, digestion, breathing. Um, and a lot of the, much of the autonomic nervous system is um, controlled or, or, or the nerves that are involved in that are what we call small nerve fibers. And um, I had become very much involved in my work specializing in nerve conditions, dealing with so-called small fiber neuropathy. So another place where small nerve fibers play a big role in our bodies is in the skin uh, in the nerve endings in our skin. So there are a number of people who would have... Um, numbness and tingling and pain uh and the neuropathy was involving nerves that were so small that it wasn't being picked up on routine tests something called an emg or nerve conductions and so um, you'd have to do other testing so it was it was a field that had been growing more and more in recent years and there was an intersection between small fiber neuropathy between autonomic disorders and uh, a particular autonomic disorder called POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, you know, where people get lightheaded with standing, their heart rate goes inappropriately fast. And in seeing those patients, that's uh, when I started seeing patients that I realized uh, were hypermobile or they were reporting to me. And there was, as there often is, there's sort of that one patient where, um, you know, she, she, it was clear that she had EDS and she had these other conditions. Um, 
and I identified that. And um, then she, she was a, a leader of a local support group for EDS. And she started sending more patients my way. And it'd be like, okay, and now I saw her and I'm seeing these other patients. And, um, you know, one day I stopped and I thought, I'm like, what am I, what am I doing? What, are, <laughs> what, what am I doing with all these pa patients with these conditions coming to see me? Should I be doing this? Do I know what I'm doing? And then, you know, I looked out at my notes and I had my, you know, as soon as I start talking to them, I'm like, all right. I need to ask them this about their joints. I need to ask them about their pots, of course, about their migraines, which they invariably have. And then I'm like, of course, I got to ask them about their GI symptoms because we're always going to, and I'm like, oh, here's my template. I do know yeah. what to do. And no one else knows what to do this. And then, you know, so then I, I was at that point where, you know, I'm in uncharted waters and do I go back to my safe little realm of what I do and where my expertise is and has been or do I push through the so I pushed through to the other side and then now this is an area where I have you know a lot of knowledge and then certainly in learning from colleagues and reading and learning from patients and so now here I am and this is the main uh, part of my practice the main thing that I, I do I still see patients with nerve and muscle disorders and do other neurology but um uh, and my main focus is hypermobility, EDS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And as we like to say, all the conditions associated with it, which is a lot. And so it's certainly, it's certainly not limiting in the least. And it's been very um, rewarding to be able to uh, work with a group of patients who's, who's, you know, very knowledgeable and who, who learn a lot about this. And like I said, it's been a learning experience for, for all of us. It very much is. And, you know, I think having worked with the hypermobile community now for some time, I think one of the key things that keeps coming up in conversations is how when they take their symptoms to doctors, they're often made to feel like they are hypochondriacs, like they're imagining the issue. And so as you were telling your story, I became, I got another this wave of happiness came over me that actually there are unique individuals like you out there that actually take the time to really sit back and go, maybe there's something here maybe that we need to start looking a little bit deeper at these people yes yeah indeed and um unfortunately physicians can be a cynical lot um and often you know when they see that oh patient self-referred or patient self-diagnosed themselves of having x or y you know you often get you know cynical and go oh groan you know this is there's Dr. Google. And um, it, it's, it's been very interesting that, you know, when a patient thinks they have hypermobility, thinks they have VDS, these related conditions, my experience has been that they're almost always right. And it's... Wow. So well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, that's so enlightening because I, I know that feeling of going, listen, I've lived in this body. I get that you, I never have your level of knowledge, but I've lived in this body day in and day out and I've at, at great length suffered. And now... I've had to try and find solutions on my own because no one was listening. And so you do discover a lot through through reading. And we have got, of course, it's irritating when someone comes with Dr. Google. I, I get that feeling that physicians have. But at the same time, I think when you haven't been given the listening ear, you have no choice but to try and find solutions on your own. And it was great to hear what you said. You were like, I learned so much from my patients bringing me information. I was so inspired to hear you say that. Yeah, yeah it's... it's uh... It's definitely an interesting process. I mean, there's so much information out there on social, you know, more than ever before on social media. And um, I don't, I've, I've never actually sat down and, you know, there's so much to do with, with you know, just getting the patient's story, as you said, and, and, and helping them work through the next steps. I never like said, so how did you put all this together? And how did you <laughs> figure this out? I mean, sometimes it happens relatively easy so to speak for them they'll say well you know my co-workers you know daughter my co-workers sister you know has cds and she said man your symptoms sound a lot like hers and then it was like boom you know yeah. it's a relatively easy process and then you know you they read about it and then the light bulbs click but i never sometimes i'm amazed at how how did you come to this how did you how did you see this and um 
because there's so much out there. How do you not get stuck like in disillusioned? A, yeah, with all the like noise. You know, multiple sclerosis chat room or yeah. uh, this or that, and you know, there's it can mimic so many things, and so um, and maybe they have been there, and maybe, but um, I don't, I don't know. Again, I think if you look at all, there's just so many things that happen or can happen to the hypermobile patient that I think, you know, in a way it makes it, <laughs> never want to use the word easy and hypermobile, but in a way it's, it's, well, straightforward, I guess would be the word. I mean, it is relatively straightforward, but, you know, to physicians and practitioners who just aren't, you know, just aren't familiar with it, it's, it's, it's not familiar. And, um, and I guess there's a lot of, um, not I guess. Unfortunately, there's a lot of um, biases that aren't good. I mean, just this idea that young women faint and that's not that's not a thing like that. You know, that's yeah. Yeah. It's common okay. but not normal. Yeah, like that's just considered. Well, sure. Yeah, you know, young women just faint. You know, they must have not eaten or they, you know, were anxious or whatever or you know, yeah, well, you know, yeah, your stomach hurts. They brush it off, don't they? They just kind you of know, brush, like, oh, your stomach hurt. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, but I've got not life-threatening symptoms. I'm not going to get triaged at the highest level, but I've got so many of these little niggly things that being in this body is highly taxing. And then unfortunately, that's exactly it. So the number, you know, adding up these seemingly disparate, oh, now we know interconnected, but to that that provider, you know, then there's so many quote unquote unexplained problems and that sort of reinforces their comfort that there's not anything there and that it, you know, hypochondriac or nervous or overly aware of things, you know, irritable bowel and headaches and fainting and palpitations. And then, you know, again, to me, as I figured out my little, <laughs> you know, the common symptoms, then you know what questions to ask and, you know, and then you see it and it's like, yeah, there, this is here, this is here, this is here. And now, you know, if we look for this, I bet we're going to find, you know, sometimes you, you feel psychic because you're like, well, I'm going to, I know they're going to, not know, but I'm going to be fairly certain that they're going to have this symptom or that symptom because that's what that's what this condition is. And again, anybody, anybody could do it. It's, <laughs> once you I have, understand, the, yeah. once you have the template. Could, but... I think you're quite special at what you do only because it's still, like you said, an emerging field. And it's very rare that well, someone oh, actually takes a step back in the way that you have. So honestly, yeah, credit where credit's well, due. No, I just mean in the sense that anyone, you know, it's not like, um, peering at an x-ray and seeing something that <laughs> other people aren't seeing i right anyone can do it if they, they care enough to really be open-minded if they were open-minded if they just look i mean it's amazing and and i was one of those people because you know i say it's amazing any neurologist is seeing all these people i mean when you're treating people with migraine and numbness and tingling and dizziness you know you've been seeing these people your whole career and it is it is interesting and humbling when, you know, I would see people that would come, you know, after I became known as somebody, you know, who knew about EDS and POTS and these conditions, they would come to see me and I had seen them several years earlier um, when I wasn't aware of these conditions. And I was one of those doctors. Again, hopefully I wasn't like to hope and believe that I wasn't dismissive, but, you know, I read my notes and I'm like, yeah, I've got some, you know, tingling and it's, you know, these tests are normal. It's unclear what this is. Let's treat symptomatically. But, you know, I just, I just didn't have the pieces to put together. And it's just like, um, I bet people but, feel so seen when they come to you. They must be like, at last someone gets me. I know that particularly running my own platform to support the hypermobile community, it's been really encouraging getting messages like that. People being like, oh my God, at last someone gets it. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, uh, particularly around your specialism is in your opinion, you're obviously a neurologist, but you also came at, at it from this sort of, um, tissue, the, the collagen perspective, chicken and egg, is it like the brain is in charge and therefore we get this kind of, um, you know, deficits lower down in the system, or is it the combination? Like, how would you describe it? Or is it different for each person? 
it's that is the question um and and that's one that that we all wrestle with and um and i continue to wrestle with so i'll say i'm really not sure and um you know that that is the question of how does you know is that the case that a connective tissue disorder causes all these problems um i think so so i, I think I think there's something about uh, the genetics or about the situation of the ab of this, these abnormal collagen disorders that sort of make people more prone to these other issues or, it, or it's certain genetic factors that travel together. Um, I mean, it is, it, it's interesting because, it, you know, I speak of speaking, I talk about speaking to my colleagues. So I'm involved with different groups and one of them is a group of providers who work with mast cell activation syndrome. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because some of them think that the, the start, the chicken and the egg, you know, that question is abnormal mast cell function. And then the collagen problems and the neurologic problems and everything else is secondary to that. And it's, and, it, and it's interesting. And sometimes you'll read the, I'll read a post and I'll go, it's like no, come on! It's we know that it's we know that the collagen problem came first, and then you know, it's always refreshing to step back and go, well, no, I don't know this, and that's just my my theory and my you know we all have our biases, but I think that's the key thing, and um, it it sounds weird in a way, but I think the minute someone in this field like me, the minute you feel comfortable and certain that you know what's going on you should be absolutely terrified because <laughs> <laughs> not terrified but really that should be the alarm bells and caution yeah. because you know that's we know certain things and that's great or we suspect certain things strongly and we have you know treatment plans and so forth but you know I'll see people and they'll have their theories and you're like well, that's a really good theory and and you've thought this through and 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 that may be you may be onto something but the minute you you know buy your own propaganda so to speak it's like we can we don't want to be paralyzed you know that's what happens to patients as evidence-based medicine is if we yeah. don't know a hundred percent and be paralyzed and like well we don't know what to do so we're not going to do anything so we want mm. to do stuff to help patients but we always want to be cognizant that not sure what's going on and 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 none of us are ever surprised when there's a paradigm shift and we're like oh remember five years ago yeah. when we thought that this was I the totally most get that remember this was the most important factor <laughs> and now we all pretty much agree that this is it it's like and it's gonna so keep I always, evolving. I always chuckle because it's like don't you realize that right now what we think makes so much sense is going to be the thing that in two years we go oh remember when we thought yeah. that so and i think it, that that should be championed and praised i think along among the medical field we should be like oh my god you're changing your mind on stuff that's that's good whereas normally it's like oh you know so and so has changed their tune and i think that that yeah. kind of narrative even in my industry i think needs to happen but you touched upon while you were talking certain things that you would um certain routes that you would take with people to help them. And I was wondering if in your years of experience, I know it's so hard without an individual in front of you, but are there any blanket recommendations that you feel if the hypermobile slash EDS community knew, it would be quite empowering for them? Well, I think just knowing that there are things that can be done. So it's, 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 it's bittersweet, isn't it? Because it's, there's not one thing, or at least right now, we don't know that, you know, so, you know, getting a diagnosis of hypermobility disorder is, is great for patients for many reasons, not the least of which they have, are being heard and validated. And it just makes sense. And, it, and, you know, so some physicians are like, it's like, well, okay, why do you want this diagnosis so much? It's not like we can do anything about it. Mm -hmm. A, that's not entirely true. B, it's like, that's kind of ridiculous. Like, doesn't everybody want to know what's wrong with them? It's like, yeah. um, you know, you spend decades just being told, you know, <laughs> you can't work and play like everybody else. And there's no reason. It's just kind of how you are. And then you find out 
there's a diagnosis that explains maybe not all, but most of the symptoms and there's other people like you. So, yeah. so there's, there's just that I got off topic. It's quite empowering, maybe. isn't it? It's yeah. empowering. But so again, most, any, pa most patients practical. aren't, yeah. So practically what you need to do is, is, is break it down. So I find the diagnosis is, is valuable to me because as I keep kept alluding to, there's going to be, I know what to look for, you know, not everybody is going to have the same problems, but there's these common threads. So in addition to hypermobility, there's going to be dysautonomia, there's going to be dizziness, potentially lightheadedness, racing heart, palpitations, fatigue, brain fog, definitely very often gastrointestinal mm. problems. Um, it's those comorbidities that kind of give you that, 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 uh, that all the pieces of the puzzle then join up and you're like, ah, and so again, it's, it's a good news, bad news. So the good news is we can identify these things and we have treatments for these problems. The bad news or the less good news is that we don't necessarily have one thing, you, you know, they all may be linked or related to the hypermobility disorder, but we have to treat the joint pain one way. We got to treat the dysautonomia another way. We may need to treat the GI symptoms, but we can. And once we get past the, what, you know, what's, is it this, is it that is, you know, okay, this is the diagnosis. These are the contributing factors. Let's, let's tackle them. And then that's, you know, so it's a journey to get, to the diagnosis and it takes time, as you said, and a lot of listening and, 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 and potentially testing and scoring through that. And then in a way, well, now we've just begun. So now we, okay, so now we gotta do the same thing. We gotta go. So don't be discouraged. You gotta, you know, you, it's like peeling an orange. You gotta pick a spot and you gotta make that first little puncture of the skin. And then once you get, you get your finger in there, then you can peel the other yeah. parts. And so, um, so I know that's not necessarily practical, but the practical thing is, is to break it down. And again, it, uh, it's unusual to maybe to find someone like me who works with so many of the parts of EDS, but then, you know, if we can identify, okay, well then, you know, if it's pots, somebody who can at least work with pots, if it's, you know, if there's something structurally wrong with the cervical spine or neck, at least finding somebody who can work with that, you know, hopefully finding, you know, some physician or provider who can at least, you know, quarterback things and help. And, and it's really hard. A lot of times patients honestly doing that themselves, which we used yeah. to think was, oh, that's the primary care physician's role. And, um, no, people have to take responsibility for their health. And I think empowering people to do that is absolutely crucial. Um, so, you, yeah, please continue. Well, just that, and then there's no blanket answer, but, you know, even, I, you know, finding different people to put on the team to help. So, you know, a, a knowledgeable physical therapist, occupational therapist, or, 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 or critical or invaluable or somebody, somebody, you know, who works with muscles and joints. Um, certainly for me as a neurologist, that's been one of the more foreign parts. You know, I think very, you know, neurology is kind of like, you know, being thinking about circuits and yeah. <laughs> you <know>, very, <laughs> you know, very, you know, cerebral and wiring and, and more akin to internal medicine and thinking about meta metabolism and so forth. Whereas, you know, bones and joints and physics and fulcrums and ah, um, you know, <laughs> is, not, is not where my brain and strengths are at. So definitely having. Um, yeah, that multidisciplinary know, team is really. In my world, in my world, that's, you know, certain physical therapists who just really understand hypermobility and most more importantly, know how to help it. And then, you know, I can work on other stuff like, you know dysautonomia and mast cell and et cetera, and migraines, of course, as a neurologist. But. Let's talk about dysautonomia. Um, you obviously mentioned that it's the functions that we don't have to think about, like going to the toilet or, you know, if you need to vomit or um, going to sleep, there's different dysautonomic uh, processes that are outside of our conscious control, heart beating, our breathing to certain degrees. Um, 
Can you run through some of the classic dysautonomic symptoms that you see? And again, you're not going to like me for asking this, but have you got a couple of little tips that maybe can guide people just to help themselves? Because they haven't got access to people like you, you know? So if there's anything Absolutely. they could do for themselves, it would be so helpful. Sure. Yeah. Um, just again, to, to talk about terminology a little bit. And so I always say this, all right, frequently say this to patients. So, you know, whenever the word dis is in front of something, it just means, you know, it's a very broad term. So dysautonomia just means some problem with the autonomic nervous system. You know, patients don't, may not understand. And their doctor says, oh, you have dysautonomia and they feel like they've been it's diagnosed. Whereas, you know, it's like if you go to your doctor and say, I have these itchy bumps on my arm and they go, you have a rash again, duh, but they haven't, you know, is it poison ivy? Is it contact? Or, you know, so obviously that's dysautonomia is the same thing. That's just saying, gee, your symptoms sound like your autonomic nervous system isn't working right. And then of course, the next step is why and what. So far and away, the most common dysautonomia that we see in, in hypermobility is this pots or for lack of a better term what we call pots and not everybody's is strictly postural you know they can have symptoms without standing their heart rate can go fast at other times and that throws people off throws doctors off a lot and um threw me off a lot when i started doing this and um i think that's why sort of people well let's call it dysautonomia because that's less specific and it is more correct mm. but then it gets vaguer but um so the most common symptoms I find are, are getting lightheaded or a tendency to be lightheaded with standing. Um, and then the heart either speeding up or slowing down sort of unpredictably. Um, again, classically, we think of the heart going fast, but in speaking with patients, it seems more, it seems clear that it, it's sort of what they know this may be a change in heart rate. And when we do a heart monitor and look at it, we don't see anything abnormal. And it's like, oh, your heart didn't go too slow. It went a little fast, but some of us think that it's that fluctuation that's that what people will say is I'm having a palpitation or, or so forth. And, um, you know, as physicians, we're looking for skipped beats or extra beats and we don't see those. And we're like, oh, you said Tuesday at two o'clock, you had a bunch of this and we look at your test and it looks You're good. Fine. And um, again, I think, we, uh, it's another example, which we hadn't talked about, which I think will be a common theme is that we have many tests and some of them are quite helpful, but we still don't have perfect tests for, for a lot of these things. Um, so cardiovascular or, or getting lightheaded, getting rapid heart rate or fluctuations in heart rate and gastrointestinal, I think are, are, are far and away the most common manifestations of dysautonomia that we that we bump into that I see in these patients. So, you know, um, getting bloated after eating. Amen. <laughs> My whole life. <laughs> being nauseous, having constipation or diarrhea. Um, and then we sort of uh, focus on those a lot, A, because they're common, B, Fortunately, we have things that can help those sometimes or oftentimes, but something that's common, but I'm less sure what to do with, but I hear a lot from my patients is temperature regulation issues. So they hands and feet getting cold or hot or the whole body, you know, it's hot out, but you're cold or it's cold out and you're hot or, you know, and, and it can change. It can change within the span of, of a short period of time. Um, and it certainly seems related to dysautonomia, um, but it's less clear what to do with that. I mean, sometimes it's just treating the other issues, which I'll talk about. I promise I'll get to something practical. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about you know, some, some things that can help. Um, so, you know, drinking, being well hydrated can help you know, with this tendency of being lightheaded, what seems to be a, again, as I getting back to, we're, we're never exactly, we're not hundred percent sure of the whole picture here, but we know that some aspect of POTS, especially in the hypermobile community is that 
you know, the veins may be more stretchy than, than they should be. And it allows for more pooling or collecting of, of blood when, when we stand up. When anybody stands up, about a fifth of the blood volume gets shunted downward and our bodies are designed to adapt for that. But if there's, if there's more blood being shunted down, then that can be cause more tendency towards dizziness. Plus, for some reason, people with POTS seem to their regulation is messed up and their their body their body blood volume is smaller than what it should be. So it's being regulated to be kept smaller. So you got that double whammy, less blood volume that's pooling more. And so we certainly encourage people to be well hydrated and to increase salt and electrolyte intake. And um, you know, just drinking water may not be enough because then your kidneys will just have it peed out. Um, Mm. adding more salt can help the body hold on to that a little bit better. As I said, sometimes, you know, if our, our wiring is, or our systems are sometimes off so that the body is thinking that it has enough fluid when it doesn't. So, I mean, we can move that needle a little bit, but, but, but sometimes not, not a lot. Wearing compression stockings um, to help again, uh, compensate for that blood pooling. And there's, there's different websites and there's a website called compressionstockings.com that has everything or more than you would ever want to know about compression stockings, how to fit them, how to get them, so forth. The higher is better, meaning if you can go all the way like waist high, that's going to be more effective than knee high. But thigh high is, is usually a good compromise because it's just hard to put these things on and then especially where we already talked about temperature sensitivities, you know, it, it can get very hot wearing those. Speaking of temperature, so heat will, can be something that can exacerbate this. When our body wants to give off heat to cool ourselves down, we dilate uh, our blood vessels and send more blood to the skin. And that process can aggravate uh, a tendency that someone already has to get lightheaded eating. So if we, when we eat, we need to divert blood to the digestive tract and then that can aggravate. So some people might notice if they eat a big meal, that'll make them more symptomatic. So eating smaller meals, you know, trying to avoid the heat or minimize exposure to that, minimizing how hot a shower is and, um, alcohol dilates the blood vessels too. So, not that it needs to be strictly avoided necessarily, but again, that can keeping in mind that that could be a trigger. So if you eat a big meal, drink some wine, then you sort of got a double whammy and, you know, you may be more symptomatic after that and it can help. Briefly going to interrupt this episode to let you guys know that I am now the proud co-author of the book, Too Flexible to Feel Good. I co-authored this book alongside my friend Adele Bridges and we realized that there really was not enough information that's easy to digest out there for the hypermobile community. And so we came together and we poured our heart and soul into writing this book. And the purpose of it really is just to give you guys a fun, easy to use a roadmap on how to manage all the crazy comorbidities that come along with hypermobility. So you can catch your copy now on Amazon or at any major book retailer. You know, these things can help explain why, why that's happening. Um, GI is, is the GI symptoms are very common and they're hard because there's multiple reasons why they can happen and there can be multiple reasons in the same person. So just being hypermobile may cause sort of twisting and movement of the intestines in ways that kind of throw things off a little bit. We already talked about dysautonomia. The autonomic system controls the movement. So movement can be sluggish or too rapid. Mm. Um, but I, I think a big player that often gets uh, potentially ignored in all in the GI symptoms and is something the so-called mast cell activation syndrome where mm. the mast cells are the sort of frontline white blood cells that are ready to sort of intercept any invaders, bacteria or, or other infectious agents that are trying to get into our body and shouldn't. And so there are a lot of mast cells in our GI tract. And if they get, if they're abnormally prone to activating or they get triggered to activate for for reasons that they shouldn't, which can happen in people with 
mast cell activation syndrome as part of their hypermobility disorder, then that they release chemicals that cause local irritation and inflammation and even sort of feedback and control or mess up how the autonomic nervous system works. So there are some certain things, there's medicine called chromalin or, or something called ketotifen or ketotifen, which are stabilizers of mast cells. Yeah, so mast cell stabilizers can be quite helpful in, in quieting down much of those GI symptoms. Um, some people That's can amazing. Be, I don't think a lot people, of people know about this as an option. They don't, and a lot of physicians don't. And um, again, you know, you learn about these things from colleagues, or, or I don't even remember how I started using these. I think colleagues or other patients may be on them. And then, you know, I go read about them and look, well, has this been studied? And, you know, it's been studied in the gastrointestinal literature as irritable bowel syndrome. So yeah. this is like in the GI doctor's literature, there's, there's randomized placebo controlled trials. I mean, maybe, maybe not, you know, the best trials in the world. I mean, not, you know, large, not large number of patients, but not horrible trials, not like, yeah. you know, not these anecdotes or case reports, but, you know, placebo groups and act and and nobody you know a lot of GIs don't know about these medicines by and large and and they're there's you know they're safe as can be I mean as much as any medicine can be their side effect profile is really good and so you know they're always worth a try they they you know, as with a lot in our business, in the business of treating hypermobility, we don't understand why some people respond well to something and maybe somebody doesn't, but it, it's definitely one of my, first, one of my first go-tos, like while we're trying to figure out the big picture, if somebody's suffering from a lot of GI symptoms, they'll say, all right, we're going to do these things. We're going to get these tests, but in the meantime, also try this chromaline and it's, not un, not infrequent at all and on follow-up they're like oh my my gi symptoms are so oh. much better and then um you must have this so, wave of pride when you have those people <laughs> come to you and just be like yes i helped another one yeah um yeah i mean sometimes food, sometimes it, foods not everybody's sensitive to gluten but some people are and just changes in diet you know some of the common offenders gluten dairy corn uh, soy, sugar. I mean, unfortunately it can get, you know, to doing, you know, some people can benefit from doing big elimination diets and then putting back and figuring out that these are culprits. Um, and those are worth doing sometimes, sometimes, you know, we can at least try to get some quick and dirty relief with, with a mast cell stabilizer. Again, there's not a one size fits all, but I mean, I definitely, you know, doing simple things to try to help the, the pause, some things to help the GI symptoms in the mast cell. Um, you know, patient, patients will be told, you know, if they get diagnosed with POTS, so even a lot of people do get diagnosed, but then they don't get treated. So you just, sometimes you, you guys, you just can't win. So many a patient had been told for all along that they had POTS, but then nobody took it seriously. They just said, well, you have POTS and you drink water and you eat salt and you need to yeah. be active. And, and then the patient says, I'm doing all that. And I'm, you know, I faint every, you know, several times a week. And they're just like, like, how does that not sound bad? <laughs> yeah, I don't think people realize how intense it is. And then nothing else happens. And I'm like, well, did you talk about medicines? And it's like, yeah, they said, you know, we could try medicines if it got bad. And you're thinking, gee, what's, what's bad? bad to me, mate? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Um, Bless you. <laughs> so, you know, some people just really need they need um, a medicine and in the hope, sometimes it is just in the short term, you know? So a common question I get specifically about POTS is, well, you know, can I do lifestyle things? If I exercise, you know, can I, can I help, help this so that I'm not dependent on medication? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, and there absolutely are studies that show that certain regimens of exercise can help, but some people aren't able to do that. You know, they need, they need a little. ES, 
the EDS, sorry to interject Dr. Sapstein, but I find the EDS community, they really struggle with fatigue. So if you get put on some kind of really rigid exercise routine, it can actually be debilitating for them because Absolutely. their yeah. bodies physically cannot handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or there's just, they yeah, really are they, heroes, yeah. these guys, Hey, they are heroes for living day to day. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. It's massive uh -oh. what they have to cope with. So they, they need a boost, you know, so if a medication can improve the POTS, then to the point where you're able to do the exercise, then, then yeah. So, I mean, um, again, there's, there's a bias and nobody has all the answers and there hasn't been the definitive study, but there's definitely a bias among not all, but a, a decent number of, of physicians who deal with POTS that think that, you know, you just, you don't want to use medicines and, you know, exercise, salt, water, lifestyle things is going to be enough. And um, I think and a combination is quite a good strategy for some people. I think if we've got right. the tools, it's worth tapping into them. Much like right. I know ADHD is another um, byproduct of hypermobility. And I think for, for that, that um, population particularly can benefit massively not just from relying on medication, but having that in conjunction with kind of therapy that teaches you how to utilize the medication to its fullest. Absolutely. And, and we don't do it, you know, we don't do that with almost any other disease. So like you say, by, there certainly are going to be providers who will say for ADHD, you don't need medicines and you can do it all with life. But, you know, there's plenty of physicians who prescribe medication for ADHD. I think of migraine again, as a neurologist, absolutely. There are dietary changes and lifestyle changes that can help, but you know, I can't think of hardly any neurologist who would never prescribe medications. I mean, we have so many medications that can help treat a migraine when it mm -hmm. happened and medications that can prevent migraines. If somebody's having them, you know, every day or, or numerous times a week, and, you know, the same neurologist who's like treating migraine every day, you know, a patient comes in, oh, you have, you know, 20 migraines a month, we're going to give you a preventive medicine. It's like a no brainer. Totally agree. And I think then the POTS patient, then the POTS patient comes in and they're like, you know, oh, well, let's, no, not for let's you. hold off on medication. And then the irony is it's often the same medication. So like a beta blocker, which mm -hmm. we'll often use for migraine would be the same exact medication that could help a POTS patient tremendously. So it's not like it's a dangerous and exotic medication. It's the same medication you just gave the last patient that you didn't even think a moment think twice, think twice about. And now you're like, oh, well, you know, we don't want to get you dependent on a medicine that could have side effects. It's like, you know, we're not it's, it's a beta block. I mean, obviously every medicine, we need to be careful and monitor things, but we, we, we have rather safe and, and effective treatments and we just need to, you know, <laughs> the treatments work much better when you use them versus keeping them in the pill jar. I think it comes down and I, it would be interesting to hear your opinion on this, but especially dosage. I think that's something that I've observed in the allopathic medical community is they just massively overdose people. And what they should be doing is just going in a little bit more gently and upping the dosage as opposed to beta blockers can have a massive effect on the vestibular system, which is, of course, a massive issue for people with hypermobility. So I think going Absolutely. in that direction very carefully is what's not happening. And that's when people get afraid of medication. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is the other thing is that we can, A, we can get away with much lower doses and B, we don't want to use too big a dose because of sensitivities. So, uh, yeah, I find, I find that the doses I use are much, are much smaller. Good. It's good to hear you say that. And actually, because you're a neurologist and I'm studying neurology, um, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about, is there any sort of things that you notice about the hypermobile brain? Is there brain scans that have revealed anything in particular that you're like, wow, this is so cool that I've discovered this, you know, unique thing that I'm observing across large populations? Um, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's been very, in some ways, frustrating 
because there are so many neurological symptoms and we don't know the cause. Like we don't, we don't really know what causes brain fog. I mean, and it, it's such an interesting, such a non-scientific term, but we can't imagine using a different term because it's just so descriptive and everybody or most everybody seems to know what you mean by it. Uh, and, you know, most of the time or the majority of the time we look at that person's MRI, it's normal. We look at their EEG, it's normal. We send them, you know, for there's something called neuropsychological testing, which is our big very careful testing of people who have cognitive problems that go to a special psychologist who, you know, spend several hours administering various tests and, and interpreting those tests. And, you know, we use it quite a lot in people who have had, you know, brain injury or we suspect of having dementia. And it can be very sensitive at finding small problems, but you know, we take our people who have brain fog and have a lot of cognitive problems, no doubt, no doubt that they're having problems. And, you know, they pass these tests, if not with flying colors, pretty close, or there's some subtle abnormalities. So we, it's just another example where we don't have a test that, that can corroborate it. I mean, um, but on the flip side, I think being a neurologist helps me because we're, we have a lot of conditions that we know that we can't see it. Like migraine is a perfect example. I mean, we, yeah. you know, we, somebody can have a mild migraine, somebody can have miserable frequent migraines and, you know, there's no test that that's going to be different between those patients. And it's, you know, it's a clinical diagnosis and, you know, it's trying medications and, and so forth and, and being on the lookout for things that aggravate it. So, I mean, I, I I think being a neurologist has sort of put me in a good position for this because, I mean, I guess any, all physicians should be, listen to their patients and, you know, keep, keep your mind open and so forth. But I think, I think a lot of neurology, you know, I've sort of been used to not having ma you know, magic bullets to fix it. You know, like we don't cure migraines, but we can treat them. We don't cure peripheral neuropathy pain, but we can, we can improve it. We can manage it. And um, again, there, you know, we know that there can be different causes and different people. So I just sort of take that paradigm and just kind of make it broader to the, to the field of, to the field. I guess this is a field, I don't know what to call it. Hypermobiliology yeah. or I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. You should definitely come up with your own term. Like the EDS guys did. <laughs> they got in there quick. Um, Okay, so we mentioned gut issues. We've mentioned things like POTS, where people get dizzy when they stand up. Um, there've been a few other things, but one of the ones that I really wanted to touch on before we wrap up this chat is anxiety. And I'd like to know your experience with your patients and again, any tools or tips that you can guide us on with this. I know it's been a big part of my life. <laughs> the old shaky nerves and them being quite debilitating. Yeah, so an anxiety is one of those things that it's been an artificial division. Again, physicians will say these symptoms are psychological and these symptoms are physiological. So. I find that in a lot of my patients who do indeed have anxious symptoms is that it's part of, it's part of their dysautonomia, part of their muscle activation syndrome. So, I mean, our, you know, we talked about our autonomic nervous system, you know, breaking it down into more detail. There's the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, the sympathetic system. Most people or many people know is that fight or flight system. So when the, body when the when our organism when we are under some sort of threat then our sympathetic nervous system helps make sure we're ready to either fight or, or flee from that um, and it releases adrenaline or it utilizes a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine which is similar to adrenaline or epinephrine and so if your sympathetic nervous system is being activated and your system is coursing with adrenaline, 
and your heart's beating fast and you're feeling and your joints are unstable and your brain's like you're in danger if your brain if your brain if that primitive system in our body one of the most important self-protective systems is ringing the alarm saying there's a danger and you say well then how it's very hard not to feel that you're in danger and um and then you know if there's not an obvious reason that that your doctor or your provider can find then they deem it as you have an anxiety disorder uh i mean i'm not saying that those don't exist and and they certainly can coexist in the same person but when i talk to patients some of them will say yeah i i get anxiety and i know what that's like and it'll happen in these situations and my thoughts go whatever but i can be sitting on my couch and I'll just feel my heart racing and in the middle and, of the night is my one or just, the middle of the night. And so, so, you know, part of that dysautonomia, part of that POTS, you know, we talked about low fluid volume and particularly with standing. So, I mean, basically that's analogous to your, like if you were hemorrhaging out. So if you just, you know, if you burst an artery and started losing blood volume, your sympathetic nervous system is going to kick in like a son of a gun. And it's, <laughs> it's going to make the arteries constrict. It's going to make the heart beat faster to, you know, if you have less blood to work with, well, let's circulate it more quickly to make sure it's, it just cares about the, the brain. Let's get that blood to the brain. And so if your sympathetic nervous system is, is, you know, kicked into the on position or is more easily kicked into that position, then, then that's, that's what you're going to feel. And then the, you know, it gets hard because for all, you know, for many reasons, we need to kind of have different terms for these different problems. So autonomic problems, mast cell problems, but in reality, they're very much, or can be very much intertwined. And so if the mast cells are, inappropriately active, they can release chemicals and those can trigger the sympathetic nervous system. If the sympathetic nervous system is overactive, it can trigger the mast cells. So some people will say, you know, I eat certain foods and I, I, you know, my heart beats fast and I feel very nervous. And then, you know, the doctors say oh, that doesn't make any sense. And yeah. so and then they'll hypochondriac, oh, you've got psychological things. You need to go to a psychiatrist. And then the so, psychiatrist puts people on um, medication, which is probably inappropriate for the reason that they actually, the root cause. Or, or they put people on the same exact medication that I would put them on, but for different reasons. So it does get interesting. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of psychiatrists use medicines that affect the sympathetic nervous system. So they put them on beta blockers or so-called alpha blockers. And so it is interesting again. So, and it's, it's good. I mean, so in some ways, it, you know, it doesn't matter what you call it as long as you treat it, but I, there is that stigma and, you know, why label something, you know, once you label something psychological, then it sort of gets carved out and it's like, oh, well, that's psychological. Whereas this is a medical illness and, you know, no one, you know, can say where, where those start, where one ends and one starts. And, and there's a lot of overlap it's all connected, but the good news is, okay, well, it's some problem with the sympathetic nervous system. Either is it being triggered by physiologic causes? Is it being triggered? I mean, obviously everything's biological at the end of the day. So even if we say yeah. it's psychological, there's still a biological mechanism, but, um, you know, you know, not everybody, you know, beta blockers or alpha blockers or something that modulates the sympathetic nervous system that may not be the answer for everyone but i, I find that a lot of times the anxiety is is something that's going to get treated or I, you know, i'm going to try to treat along with the dysautonomia and the mass cell oh, it's just such a privilege to hear you talking about all this stuff i want to say a sincere thank you You're i know welcome. that we're kind of close to the end of this chat um just having a quick think about everything we've chatted about. Is there anything that you're like, we didn't get to cover this one thing and I really wish I had the opportunity to talk about it. And please don't worry if you feel like we've covered enough ground. No, I feel like I've just been very chatty and that there were certain things. It. There were more <laughs> so things. That, 
I guess try again, just trying, I, I've been hearing you trying to be, you know, give people more um, specific things they can do. I mean, I, Clearly, my message is, you know, there's definitely hope. There's things that can be done, and um, you know, understandably, the to the patients who have just been through a long journey and and have just been rebuffed or you know told that you know there's nothing that can be done or nothing that needs to be done because they're fine. Um, but you know, there are providers who more and more are understanding this or at least being receptive to it. And then I know it's hard, but you just got to take a deep breath and then be patient and then, you know, work with, you know, you got to break the problems into little problems and work with them. I know I already said that, but I, I would just reiterate that. And um, I mean, it gets overwhelming. I mean, it's obviously overwhelming for the person experiencing it, but unfortunately, or just they're human. It gets overwhelming for the physicians and the providers. And, um, and, but again, that's our job. I mean, we know. So, you know, like I say, you know, when I first started, I'd make my list and then, you know, obviously you're not going to fix everything on the list. So you just, you know, got to sort of triage. It's always about that. And um, sometimes you can treat one treatment and it's kind of like, you know, we're going to treat dysautonomia and anxiety. We're going to help dizziness. And as a, as a, as a consequence of that, we're going to help the anxious feelings where you're going to help GI symptoms. And, you know, that may help anxious feelings as well. And uh, so you just gotta, you just gotta keep with it and, um, you know, keep looking for underlying, you know, problems. We just scratched the surface today, but there's, you know, getting to that chicken and the egg of, collagen problems and other there's there's sort of a cascade or an array of problems that that can develop there can be you know the joints being out of whack can cause certain structural problems with the brain um and then you know just sort of figuring out where we can kind of take our <laughs> take our wrench and tighten the bolt here and and turn some screws there and, and kind of tinker to get to get somebody better and better and better. You took the words right out of my mouth when you said hope. I think that this conversation is hope for so many people. So again, thank you. And yep. something that I ask all the guests, I don't tell them I'm going to ask this, and it doesn't have to be related to the topic we've been discussing, but in your experience working, gosh, over 20 years now with all these people, and just as a man on this planet, having lived life, have you got a message that you wish everybody in the world could be inspired by somehow? Um, well, yeah, I think things are, we can understand things better if we just sort of take the time to listen and, you know, listen to different sources and different places. And just, I think, keep an open mind. I mean, you, you can have an open mind and be critical at the same time. I think a lot of what, you know, a lot of why this happened, obviously doctors aren't bad and evil is, uh, you know, you don't want to just sort of take a theory that sounds good and run with that. But, you know, you, you have, it's hard and it's hard. And, and I struggle with this every single day, but that's where, you know, that's where the satisfaction comes from or the you know that's the whole point of it is trying to you know keep be open enough to see the patterns without you know getting yourself deluded that you're seeing patterns that aren't there and and you know nobody's going to be right 100 percent of the time and and that's you know why you know it takes more than one person it takes a community and you know we're so much further down the road than we were, you know, even a short while ago in terms of recognizing patterns. And, you know, it's, it's been contributions from many people and uh, it's, it's just great to be able to, to, you know, help people. I mean, just in the sense of figuring out, you know, why these things might be happening and, and explaining it to them. And then, and then, but more importantly, being able to offer some concrete stuff that will help.
Yeah, and it, that definitely comes from that frame of mind of being open but critical at the same time. And I'm so glad you put those two juxtapositions together because I think it really is the cornerstone of the future of medicine. Um, and with that being said, where can people find out more about you and the amazing work that you're doing for this community of people? So, um, you know, our website, Center for Complex, or Center for, our website, complexneurology.com, and we're on, uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook as the Center for Complex Neurology. Yeah, and I just want to also flag, guys, that uh, the Instagram is so great. It's got really solid resources that can provide hope. And I think that that is where everybody, when they're on social media, which can be a negative platform in many ways, look out for the platforms that give knowledge, that is evidence-based, that comes from people that have walked this path for a long time and that actually give you hope in the process. So well, thank, thank you for doing that. Sure. Well, thank you for what you do. And uh, this was an enjoyable hour for me. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. All right, guys, thank you so much. And we'll look forward to chatting to you soon. Thank you for listening to Love at First Science. And of course, thank you for all of your support. And if today we spoke about any topics that resonate with you, or perhaps you feel could help someone in your life, please do share this episode. Remember, you can also support the podcast by leaving a review. And guys, it really helps more than you could realize. So thank you for taking the time to do that. It does only take a couple of minutes. That's all for now. I'd like to wish you love at first science.